Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Full Chat the weekly F1 news and discussion show that's going to write an open letter to its fans promising to stick together and work as a team through this difficult 2023 season. I'm Brad Philpott, and as always, I've done my best to filter through this week's busy news cycle to find the best F1 content. And we want you to add your views and join in the discussion in our live YouTube chat. We run a Twitter space during this recording, but we completely ignore the listeners on there. So if you're one of them, search Full Chat F1 on YouTube and get involved in the chatting. Remember, any Super Chat questions get a guaranteed answer from the panel, and tonight we expect lots of questions for our star guest, because tonight we talk F1 data with Twitter sensation at F1 Data Analysis and learn exactly what each team's strengths and weaknesses are and if there's any hope for the season ahead. We try to work out what's going on behind the scenes at F1's top three teams, with rumours of discontent brewing at Red Bull, Ferrari and Mercedes. In History with Alex and Brad... We look back at the birth of F1 data analysis in Formula One and ask what's next as the tech improves even further. And as usual, we answer your questions in real time as you send them in. Joining me, as always, a former semi-decent kart racer who's more cheddar than Jeddah, my co-host and best mate, Alex Van Jean. How's it going, Alex? <laughs> I love cheese. Me too. Especially cheddar. It explains... <laughs> That's a good one. That's one of your better ones. That's, it's quite that's a simple one as well, isn't it? I, I yeah, like yeah. that one. I thought um, I'd go back to the fat shaming this week since it worked with the track. Because you finally thought of one because something because exactly. right, cheddar rhymes with Jeddah. Um, exactly. We like we, we like rhyming and we like puns, so that works well as far as I'm concerned. I am good, Bradley. Mostly because I um some bloke gave me his old um graphics card and Shh. all of a sudden makes my um my PC look much prettier, especially after I took my kids around to their house and terrorised all their animals. Yes, um, yep, I suffered as a result of you coming around and my poor cats haven't recovered. Shall I introduce our guest? Let's do that because we're excited about this one. 
So also joining us tonight is a man who's become a revelation of F1 Twitter, taking the mountains of data pumped out during each F1 weekend and presenting it with easy to understand graphics and incredibly interesting Twitter threads. He's followed by every major F1 account, including the current world champion, and we're delighted to welcome him onto the show. It's Mirko Bartolozzi, aka F1 Data Analysis. Ciao e benvenuto allo spettacolo Mirko. Grazie mille Bradley. So I'm thrilled to be here. Hopefully we'll have a lot of very interesting chats about all the data that we finally got from the first official session of this year. We we are really genuinely very excited to have you on. You're our first proper I'm going to call you an F1 celebrity because you are, you know, you're known by people up and down the grid. You're you're not just a fan favorite, you're actually an industry professional. So we can't wait to ask you a bunch of questions and if you're watching this on YouTube, send in your questions for Mirko and we'll try and get to them. So before we get going, a quick reminder, if you're joining us on the Twitter space, you're not going to hear the music or the bumpers. So if you want to get involved in the chat, see what we look like and have no weird gaps where there's no sound between our topics head to YouTube. The link's on my Twitter profile where you can search for Full Chat F1. So, what have you been up to this week, Alex? Um, what have I been up to this week? More working, more all that, all that boring stuff. I was away a lot last week. Um, as I said to you before, I've been sorting out my PC and getting it all nice. However, as is always the case whenever it comes to an upgrade on the PC, I then start to think about other bits of the PC that can get upgraded and how I end up, how I'm going to wind up paying for those things. And So... My my PC, the full chat recording PC, seems to be working fine. We've generally had, you know, oh uh, uh, yeah, fingers crossed, touch wood. There's not much wood in this room to touch, but uh, hopefully we're going to have a trouble-free season. I'm not just going to say episode because, you know, we're running on a supercomputer here at full chat HQ. So let's let's press on with the season. Who thought I could have made a very, very small joke that, requ- that involved in you getting a whole new um heart of the pc let's let's stop talking about that so i don't get into trouble we're gonna jump in fine (laughs) we're gonna jump into this week's topics so our first segment is to ask what is f1 data analysis and and what i mean by that is what is the account at f1 data analysis and who is the man behind the account so Mirko, introduce yourself. Who are you and where are you? Okay, so thank you. Uh, I'm Mirko Bartolozzi, as you uh, pronounced uh, perfectly. I'm a 27 years old uh, Italian guy. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer uh, um, from the University of Florence. I did both the bachelor and the master's there. And I'm currently a PhD student still in the University of Florence together with another Italian university. So basically, my background is in mechanical engineering and not in data analysis itself, let's say. Um, For those who don't know, the PhD is a period. It's three years in Italy after your master's in which which the aim is to become, during this period, um, an independent researcher. So someone who is able to ask himself questions to uh, identify some gaps in our knowledge, in our understanding, in the research, and try to fill those uh, gaps uh, in the most uh, rigorous and uh, effective way possible. Um, The page, let's say, it's something I started um, just 
out of um, j just to try it. It was not uh, necessarily something which I uh, envisioned as something that should have become something big. But as with everything I do, I always try to uh, do a smaller number of things, but to push the most, <laughs> just to make them as good as possible. And it seems that the thing was appreciated. I just started that out of uh, a chance, let's say, just because I, I was um, used to uh, studying a lot during the bachelor and the master's. Then when I started the PhD, you are sort of a, a worker student. So uh, you have uh, the weekends off. And so after a bit, when there was, uh, yeah, you have Formula One, you have hanging out with friends, you have uh, reading, uh, watching movies, but after a bit, you lose a bit of meaning. I mean, when you have a lot of free time, okay, uh, you really start to think about creating something with that free time, uh, as also you are doing with this podcast. So that was, let's say, the spark that told me, okay, you have a very strong background on these things. And especially, I was the very first early adopter of myself, meaning that I myself wanted to uh, see this kind of analysis. Okay, I was not satisfied with what I saw uh, currently on the socials, on um, the forums. There was, there were good analysis, but there was no account who made all the analysis that I wanted to see. So I decided to try to make them for myself. And then other people, of course, enjoyed them. And so you clearly have found a gap in the market because your content has been absolutely snapped up. I think I probably discovered you about six months ago or so, but everyone, I think pretty much everyone who sees your content subscribes to you or, or follows you immediately because it's immediately obvious the kind of quality and the the way it's presented in a in a manner that's actually understandable for non-engineers and non-data professionals, which wasn't really available from anywhere else that, that we could find anyway. And I think a lot of us find it quite incredible that you're actually still studying, you're still a student and you're doing this in your spare time. This looks more like something that's a full-time job. Yeah, it is uh, not a full-time job, but uh, it's very, very time-consuming. I, I guess I spend around uh, 15 hours a week, more or less, uh, managing the page, more or less. Uh, when you don't have Formula One in one week, like this week, the time is reduced, okay? But still, I this is something I'm very proud of myself. I answer to, I, I think, over 99% of the, of the DMs I receive, and I receive like... 10 per day okay so just that and answering the comments uh, as much as i can is something which is very time consuming because it's not scalable okay so the more you grow the more dms you receive but i still want to answer to a single one of them um, of them just because uh, i myself would have asked someone like me how i don't know he access the data or which assumptions he made and why especially he made that assumption because maybe you can also uh, speculate about that uh, afterwards there is no exact results in most analysis okay and it is always a result given a set of assumptions so it's equally important which are the assumptions and why you you chose them we have to do the best given the few data that we have 
and I'm trying to improve on that every day. Let's say. So where does where do you find your data from? I think that's we've we've had a couple of questions in there, and I'm I'm certain that it's been asked on on your Twitter, and even by me. I'm like, where does this information exist? Where you pick it up from to be able to produce the things you do? Okay, so the prime source of the data is F1 TV. Okay, so it's the official uh, data. Uh, when you watch, I don't know the poll lab. Okay, and you see um, the speed indication, the throttle indication, um, the gear, and so on. Those data which are shown on TV are the same data that I retrieve. So it's the official data. This does not mean that the data is always perfect. Okay, there are some issues. For ex for instance, uh, the frequency, the sampling frequency, is not very very high because it's meant to show it on the TV or on F1 TV, okay? But it's good enough to, to draw conclusions as long as you are, uh, let's say, conscious of the limitations. But it's the official source. Uh, where, how do I take that? I uh, retrieve the data through a Python package, which is called the Fast F1. And I really have to say thank you to the guy who is uh, uh, who, have, who created the the package and who is maintaining the data. So FastF1 is, um, let's say, a set of functions of, Py let's say, many lines of Python code. Python is one of the most uh, um, diffused uh, programming languages, also because it's completely free, okay? Which takes the data from, extracts, let's say, the data from F1 TV and allows you to store this data on your PC to perform computations and so on. It's not the only way to retrieve the data. In fact, if you are not a programmer, if you don't want to uh, do that on your uh, laptop or um, desktop, you can. You have another alternative, which I really enjoy, which is F1 Tempo, which is a website which allows you through just uh, some menus uh, to choose the session, the drivers, the labs, and produce the telemetry. That is very, very handy. And it's what it's what I would recommend to guys who just want to access the telemetry without doing fancy analysis, just to check, I don't know, the some data after the session if I don't show it uh, before. That's very cool. Don't give away I all the crown jewels, otherwise someone's going someone's gonna to start copying you. I have to say, I think most of our listeners probably heard that explanation and went, oh, okay. Yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> so I think I think your role is probably safe. I don't think there's many people with the the combination of the access, the expertise, and the willingness to go through everything you've just described. Um, but that's fine because I like the way that Mirko does it. So we don't need another person to do it. But it's it's all it's all well and good with these sorts of informations of you know being given loads and loads and loads of lines of code of data. I, I can imagine to most people it will just look like squiggles on a page um, and random numbers and people won't have a clue what to do with it, which is where someone like Mirko is absolutely perfect to sort of put it in as close to layman's terms. The fact that on some of his nice charts that we've seen, even I understood some of it. That's going, that is saying something. So I think one of the other questions that probably a lot of people are thinking are, is how you choose which thing to analyze because there's so much data being pumped out how do you select something to to actually tell us about how do you choose what you're going to turn into a graph and make it pretty and tweet about it 
Well, I see my general management of the page as uh, um, two things which happen at the same time. Okay, one is the operational side. The operational side is just uh, making sure that the page is uh, running correctly. So if there is, I don't know, a new session, okay, uh, I will uh, uh, prepare the post, I will uh, uh, answer to the comments and so on. The other thing is the strategic, let's say, uh, aspect, which is developing new code to produce new type of analysis. This allows me to automate, I, I would say, everything, okay? Um, so I have all my scripts, like I have, I don't know, uh, two or three for qualifying, a couple for the race and so on. So um, around uh, 30 minutes after the session, the data becomes available. There is also a way to access the live data, but otherwise I will work even more. So I prohibit myself from doing that. So uh, after 30 minutes, I, uh, let's say, open my script, I choose the session, and then I will just run the code uh, that produces and stores also all the plots. After that, I know uh, at least which plots I use most of the time, like the top speed chart or the, uh, the, the mini sector comparison, or in the case of the race, I don't know, the tire degradation or race pace, okay? So uh, I skim very quickly through the analysis and I, as of now, let's say, have this uh, uh, instinct in noticing at in the very first seconds if there is something strange in the data, okay? Something strange can be good or can be bad. If it's uh, an error in the data, you have to, uh, let's say, discard that analysis. Like, I don't know, there is um, a wrong tire in qualifying. Everyone is on the soft, someone is on the hard. It's absurd, okay, in Kufri. So uh, you have to discard that analysis or to you can publish that, but you have to make it. Would you discard the whole session or would you dis just discard that one car that's no, 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 got you, the wrong tire? Okay, Let, let's say I, I go... And I have this folder in which I all my analysis get saved, okay? So I will just skim through this analysis, checking something interesting, but something interesting can be something wrong. So uh, unless one, let's say, exceptional data is wrong, in which case I will discard the analysis. If the data is not wrong, okay, and more or less there are many ways to understand if something is crazy or if it's simply exceptional, if it's exceptional, then that is the analysis that gets the priority, okay? Like, I don't know, oh, ten, nine cars out of 10 that reach a top speed, which is very close to each other, and one car which is much faster, okay? Then it means that that car has very low drag or it's running an incredibly high uh, engine mode. So that analysis is of interest for me and for anyone else. And then there is, there are, Although, so uh, these analysis which are uh, which show something which is interesting about the session are the ones which get the priority, and then there are all the routines analysis like the mini sector comparison, uh, the top speed uh, comparison. I'm talking about qualifying or the race pace and so on, which get uh, published uh, anytime. And for each, you have to. Uh, this is something which is also true in the field of research, but also in the field of, uh, if you are, I don't know, a race engineer, okay? You have to look for uh, what is interesting in the data because 
Um, this is something which I like to say. Uh, people don't like the, the data because the data itself is just numbers. It, if you look at the data, it's just a very long table of numbers. Nobody likes numbers by themselves. People love the story that the numbers tell and make objective and quantitative, okay? So you have to find, uh, you don't have to look at the single analysis by itself. You have to look at all the analysis of the session so that you get the idea, okay? So, okay, that top speed is high, but why? It could be due to low drag, to high power, or maybe a very strong tone. How do you know? You cannot know by looking at that analysis in isolation, but if you look at all of them together, then you will get a, a clear picture, let's say. This is making, some, uh, making averages, isn't it? Sorry? Sorry, it's making averages, isn't it? Uh, let's say like, uh, um, no, it's not. Uh, uh, it is, you know that reality is interconnected, okay? So uh, when you have a car, the many aspects of the car produce the outcome. So if you see that the car accelerates very quickly, uh, during the straight, and at the same time, it reaches a very high top speed, then the very high acceler longitudinal acceleration, I mean, through the straights, tells you that the car was running in high engine power mode. But if the car reaches the same very high top speed, but very slowly, then it means that the car has very low drag and probably high mass, so a lot of fuel or a detuned engine, because you can reach very high top speeds also with a detuned engine or even more so with a lot of fuel as as long as your drag is very low. So you have to look at things um, at all the things at the same time. This is something which is absolutely not easy to convey uh, through a tweet because I would have to produce a single thread, okay, in which I post all the analysis and do cross-referencing. But even though I don't always specify this, I use this information at any time to make sure that what I say is as correct as I can. It's not easy because especially on Twitter forces you to write very concisely and I cannot write anytime all the assumptions, all the hypotheses and the probability of stuff. Okay, you also have to uh, use uh, not too many uh, adjectives because you don't have space. But uh, all curses, the time, I curses try the to Twitter be... character limit. <laughs> yes, but it's also a blessing because it, it really helped me uh, writing concisely, okay. and this also helped me uh, in writing uh, scientific articles, which are like uh, seven thousand words more or less, while Twitter is like twenty words. But what you learn in a very short test, you, you will also use in a longer text. So it's been also a nice exercise for me. So um, the most popular one I think you've put up in the last week is the one that looks like a bit like a compass with the high speeds and the downforce. Um, what does what are you um, what are you showing? In the, maybe you can explain that graph to us, which obviously people have seen on your Twitter. Um, but for the people who are just watching on the podcast and might not have seen that, can you explain what that showed? And then obviously it shows us that cars are some cars are particularly fast, some cars aren't so, some cars are much more similar than we may may have expected. Can you elaborate on that one for us to let us know, let the people know where the grid currently stands as far as Bahrain is concerned? I think Brad wants to add something. Or no? Well, 
I mean, I, I've, I've been absolutely loving everything you've been saying and sitting here As like, drinking my drink and, and just enjoying it. Yes, the chat's also really enjoying it. Um, I, I wanted, just before we got on to our next segment, which is exactly what Alex is just talking about, specifically each car in 2023's strengths and weaknesses and how you've presented that this week, just before we get onto that, I wanted to ask you about um, really our first interaction you and i which was some data from last year but i believe it came out in the off season which was actually about sergio perez at monaco last year um i i made a video on perez's incident in fact this was this will have all come out after the brazilian grand prix in 2022 when there was the the strange animosity between max verstappen uh, and sergio perez after the race uh, max refusing to allow perez back through and then this whole incident at Monaco was kind of revealed, something that we'd not really looked into at the time. And you went back and had a look at the data there. And it was your analysis of that that really alerted me to the fact that, you know, you existed and, and how nice your your presentation was. And you very kindly allowed me to use um, some of your uh, graphs in my video. In fact, if you want to, anyone who's listening, go back and search for um, something like did Perez crash on purpose? Um, and you'll see what the conclusion was. But how did you go and find that information? Uh, how did you, can you go back that easily? Did you have that all stored from that race last year? Okay. Uh, concerning Perez, many people, uh, I would say the people who did not follow me before, uh, some people asked me, hi, why are you looking at all this data now and not at the time? But, uh, and the reason why I say this, uh, it's because the people who were following me already had the answer. The answer was that uh, I'm very, let's say, methodical, okay? As I told you, everything is automated, at least what I can automate. And so I automatically, after each qualifying session, look at the data of the best lap of each of the best three teams, okay? So as Perez crashed and uh, also, uh, who was, I think, uh, science uh, after him, okay? I did not look at those drivers, but by default, we, we can say. Um, I, I only look at specific laps in the race or in qualifying if they are not, uh, let's say, some, uh, as, I, as I said, good laps, okay? If someone makes me uh, notice something, because <laughs> at that point, it means that at least one person is interested about that. Because I, I, I don't even have F1 TV, okay? Even if that might sound strange. So um, I don't look at all the on boards, okay? I'm, after all, I'm just a fan who spends some time after the session. So me, as other people, just watched the broadcast. So Perez, who was crashed onto the barrier and said, okay, it's a normal crash as it happens. Monaco is a, a difficult track. Uh, then I said, I, I saw many people, but, but really many people, like at least 10 or 15, who were tagging me in all the articles saying, hey, you have to look at this thing. Maybe there is something. So I just did that. I, I, for that, I think, uh, yeah, the, the, very, the very first time I looked at the data, I did so through F, um, Formula 1 example, just because if you want to access the telemetry, uh, just to check something is um, is a very good source, okay? So, yes, I noticed that there was something which was uh, hard to explain. I'm not saying that we are sure that Perez crashed, because before these people um, told me to check, 
I, I thought it was something crazy, but just due to the fact that he had not such a strong moment, he he was he, he didn't have much to gain from crash. Okay, but yeah. at the same time, from looking at the data, you 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 understand that something very strange happened. It doesn't mean necessarily that he did that on purpose, but the uh, the throttle signal didn't make sense. But by that, I don't mean that it looked like something impossible, like going at uh, 200% throttle, but it increased in a completely different way than both the previous corners of the same lap and the previous and that corner um, from the previous lap and that lap uh, as well. And um, just a second, Alex. Uh, and as when I said before, you don't have to look to one data in isolation because that would have meant simply that he slipped his foot onto the throttle. It, it can happen. I don't know how. Um, I don't know how how often it can happen for an F1 driver, but it's something that you can explain in a simple way. But at the same time, I looked at the onboard, and the onboard is uh, um, synced with the audio. So you, you can see at the same time that he goes completely or almost completely full throttle very quickly, uh, much before the apex, which makes no sense. And yeah. at the same time, after he loses the, after the car oversteers, he does not counter steer. And that really, uh, it was crazy for me because I'm not, I, I, I like, um, I ride a, uh, I drive a front uh, um, a front wheel uh, drive car, so I'm not used to counter steering. But just by uh, doing some sim racing, I get the instinctive reaction of counter steering. That is something which is very strange. If myself would have, I don't know, been playing okay on some games, I would have probably crashed anyway. Okay, but I would have done so by not counter steering enough or by counter-steering too much, but not counter-steering is, is something strange. So we don't have, of course, the conclusive evidence, but at least it's something uh, that was, uh, um, let's say, that, that had to be studied because it's something which is uh, uh, abnormal. We cannot know if it's an exceptional mistake, but for sure it's something exceptional and so worthy of uh, analysis. And so for me, the, the real smoking gun was that steering trace or the video that you can clearly see but i hadn't i also hadn't gone back to have a look at this because as you said at the beginning of your explanation there there wasn't really any reason to at the time it there didn't seem to be a massive amount for him to gain in hindsight we can assign potential motives to it but once you laid the data out and you could see and all of f1 twitter could see such an abnormal acceleration point like you said before the apex that can be explained away but like a, as slipping, you know, your foot slipping, which would still be unusual. And it would be very unusual for him to not comment on that afterwards. But the thing that I still can't think of any good explanation for, and you've, you've illustrated it saying that your natural reaction, even just from sim racing would be to apply opposite lock, turn into a slide. He, he didn't do that at all. And a professional driver, in order to not apply opposite lock, when a car is getting sideways, you have to do that consciously. You you have to force yourself to not turn into the slide because every every ounce of your driving being since you were a go-kart driver is to correct slides without even thinking about it. So that really was was quite 
um, damning, and that's why I made a video on it. And uh, and I appreciate you giving me that data, Alex. The interesting thing from it, from my point of view, I I actually missed that race. Um, but when I heard that Perez had binned it from binned it in qualifying for third on the grid, I like a lot of other people would have gone okay fair enough it's Perez he probably did have a crash and wouldn't have looked back into it it's only when you actually go and actually have a proper watch and I and I'll be honest I didn't have a proper watch for that crash until you made your video and the second I saw it I was like um yeah that's not right now that was that that that, that meme with um with Leonardo DiCaprio going <laughs> that one it's like yeah I'm that's sure really, that sounds really great obvious. on the podcast that that nice whistle sorry anyone who's got the volume turned up loudly okay so I've derailed the conversation enough shall we move on to this year's cars and the topic that you were just alluding to a few minutes ago, Alex. I'm going to take that as a yes. Let's do that. So our second segment then is specifically a a post, a tweet that you tweeted this week, Mirko, which was, as Alex kind of described, a kind of north, south, west, east um, you can tell us what the official name for this kind of graph is, but it's kind of a cross. If you imagine a, a cross vertical line and a horizontal line, which intersect in the center of the page, and you've placed each team as a colored dot in different places in that square area. And in one direction, I think it was, was it top speed? And the other direction was downforce. You, you tell me, I'm probably, in fact, I think I've got an image of this to bring up on the screen here. Okay. So it is low drag at the top, high drag at the bottom, slow on the left and quick on the right. And each team is somewhere on that chart. So tell us what this is and, and what we should be reading into it. Yeah. So uh, first I cannot tell you what is the name of this plot because I, I never seen it before, so it's something I simply invented. Uh, it, it's called, let's say, uh, putting some dots, okay, onto a, a planar surface is called the scatter plot, or uh, yeah, or dispersion plot, okay, which means that uh, the uh, the horizontal axis and the vertical axis are not directly related, okay. So. For example, if you plot the speed as a function of distance, of course, the two things are related. And so you connect these things through a line, okay? But in that case, there is no, uh, there is not something which is before and something which is after. So you just put some dots, okay, onto the, um, onto the surface based on two variables, okay? That is called a scatter plot. Then by adding um, the, the specific choice of, uh, uh, putting what, this quantity on the horizontal axis and the other quantity on the vertical axis and drawing all the arrows is something I uh, invented. Okay, so I, I called it aeromap, but aerodynamicist by aeromap mean how much the drag and downforce change with the change of pitch and the uh, ride height of the car. So it's something strange. I call it aeromap because it's sort of a roadmap of, uh, let's say, uh, of uh, a, a geographic map which tells you which car is where, and by knowing where it is, it tells you its main properties. So on the horizontal axis, you have the mean speed, so the average speed through the lap. That is not something strange, okay? Uh, the, the mean speed is proportional to the inverse of the lap time. So you have a given track length, like uh, five uh, kilometers, more or less for Bahrain. You divide that by the time, by the lap time, and you get the mean speed. So it's something which is uh, directly linked to the 
uh, lap time, which is the only thing after all which matters uh, in qualifying. It does not matter whether you get that through high drag, low drag, uh, high downforce, low drag. If you are fast, you are fast, and, that, and that's the same given a certain lap time. So from left to right, you have an increase in mean speed. So on the left, you will have the teams which posted a worse time in qualifying, okay? Moving towards the right, you move, you, you, you start getting the quicker teams in qualifying, okay? So if a team so, is all the way on the right-hand side, that's, that's kind of 100% fast. That's the fastest team on the grid yes in and, fact and... if you check the sorry if you check the starting grid you will see that the red bull was the first car then the next fastest car on the grid was the ferrari then the aston then the mercedes then the Aston, alpine and so on so it's it just the running order okay but it's quantified in terms of speed then on the vertical axis you have the uh, top speed of the car okay so uh, if you compare, I don't know, uh, Alpha Tauri with McLaren, okay, you have the same mean speed. It means that the two cars were more or less as quick during the qualifying, but they were quick in very different ways. Okay, so uh, the horizontal axis tells you how quick. The vertical axis tells you why it's quick, okay? Yeah. Uh, how how high is the top speed? So you can see that the McLaren and Alfa Tauri more or less did the same lap time, but McLaren was uh, four kilometers per hour quicker. Okay. So yes. these are two objective quantities. So the mean speed and the top speed are something which are objective. You you get that through straightforward calculations with no uh, assumption whatsoever. They are exact data. Okay. So. Then, what is the second? Uh, the errors I plotted, okay, apart from the horizontal ones, are, let's say, tendencies, are correlations. They are not exact, okay? But I will explain you afterwards, after your question, what this means. So what you're saying between McLaren and AlphaTauri, for example, is they are achieving very similar lap time in a very different way. So what, I can, what I'm taking from the graph is the AlphaTauri has a lot more... Um, has a lot more downforce than the McLaren has, and the McLaren is basically making that time back up on the straights. Yes, oh, but isn't yes. isn't it's high downforce less, yes. high downforce towards the right hand bottom side? No, of high graph. drag down the bottom. High drag down, but I mean, this is great for an audio format, by the way. So apologies <laughs> to anyone. Anyone well, who's we'll, listening what we'll do on in podcast, the in the show notes for this, we will put a link to Mirko's Twitter uh, tweet, so you can. What look at it while you're listening to the podcast? Yes, and Mirko is doing a great job more with words. Yes, I think you're doing a brilliant job describing it with words. By the way, Mirko. So I just want to I just want to check. So we're talking about McLaren versus Alpha Tauri, and because they're directly over the top of one another, McLaren is directly north of Alpha Tauri. We're saying that means they're the same effective lap time, very similar. So they're the same they're the same um, space from the left of the graph. But Alpha Tauri is right at the bottom. So that means it's got a lot of drag. And because it's bottom left, that means it doesn't necessarily also have a lot of downforce. Is that right? If it was on the bottom right, we'd see it also had lots of drag, but also lots of downforce. Okay, I will explain it in a very simple way, I hope. So by moving from the left to the right, so by increasing the mean speed, the car gets faster. You don't know why, okay? It's, it just gets faster. By moving from the bottom 
to the top, you increase the top speed. So the car, get, let's say, in, in the other case, it got quicker over the lap. In this case, it gets, it gets faster on the street. But you don't know if you get some additional lap time gain from this. Okay, so uh, this is very straightforward, I would say. Why I wrote low drag and not high power or, uh, I don't know, lo longer gearing and so on, because of uh, how Formula One is made, okay? It's much easier to have a 10% drag differential between two cars than to have a 10% power differential, which would be ah, 100 okay. kilometers, uh, 100 uh, horsepower, okay? So the, the power difference between teams is at most 15 horsepower. It's very, very small. And in some time, you also uh, get the certainty that everyone is running at the highest uh, mode they can run. Okay. So is so, one of your assumptions you're making that the power between the teams is effectively the same? So we're almost discounting the power and any difference in speed is probably drag related. Yeah, yes, let's say that. This is the very first assumption. So, so far, I did no assumption. The data was straightforward and uh, exact, let's say. Here I'm saying, okay, maybe there are some power differences, okay, but they are negligible compared to the uh, possible drag differences due to running different wings, which are uh, in the order of five, even 10% across teams, across the grid. Power differences are at most 2%, so it's much smaller. And also, if you compare Aston with Mercedes, with McLaren, with the Williams, it's the same engine for all of four. So um, unless the uh, ERS uh, deployment has a completely different strategy, which is not the case, because in qualifying, we can mathematically prove that the most effective way to deploy the energy is as soon as you can on the straight. So there won't even be a difference very significant on the power deployment. So we can say, okay, the power is the same for equally engined teams or very, very close. So what I didn't write a drag value, okay? The, the arrow just tells you that, okay, if a team is higher up, it almost surely will have lower drag than one team, which is much down, okay? So if you compare, I don't know, Alpha to McLaren, they two could have, it's just a one kilometer per hour difference, they could have the same drag, okay? But if you compare Williams to Alpha Tauri, you can bet your house that even though you don't have the data that the Williams will have lower drag. So this is the basis for the analysis. Then where it gets interesting, it's um, the corners, okay? Which get a bit more fuzzy, okay? So le le let's say um, you have uh, many ways of being quick. Like the Ferrari was quick. It was the second quickest car, okay? as was the Aston Martin. But the Aston Martin was much slower in the streets. But the, the lap time was this, let, let's say it was the same, okay? So you have the same lap time, but a much lower top speed. So you know two things. The car takes the, the, the same time to do the lap, but it will lose a lot of time onto the streets, especially the second part of each street. So, by definition, it will have to make up for that somewhere else in the truck, okay? So maybe it has a, a better acceleration, even though the, the engines are quite close. Maybe it has a better mechanical setup, which allows it to, uh, I don't know, to use the throttle sooner, okay? The fact, however, is that there is 
some way in which the car is quicker and it's not the streets for sure, at least most of the streets. So the other assumption I make is, okay, Formula One cars are mostly dictated by aerodynamics because the, the tires are the same for all. They are all running the same manufacturer, the same compound, and also the same number of laps at the same pressure, which is mandated, with also mandated maximum amount of camber. So, Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The, the grip, more or less, more or less, I mean, is the same, okay? And the engine power also is very similar. So the biggest uh, difference in grip levels is the downforce. And, and we know that when, I don't know, um, when one team, which is very good in grip, runs a very skinny rear wing, they are not the, the best in downforce anymore. It's very clear also from the telemetries. So the aerodynamics is the main differentiators in Formula One. It was not the case in 2014, for example, where Mercedes had an exceptional advantage in power, okay, compared to Red Bull. Red Bull probably was a slightly better car, slightly, I mean, aerodynamically, but the Mercedes was so far ahead in power that that difference was not enough. But now all the engines are the are very similar. The, there is the fuel flow meter, which... Um, doesn't make you produce much power than others. So the aerodynamics is the main dif differentiators. But we already know the drag level, okay? Because we know the top speed. So more or less, we know the drag. So if the car is as quick with much more drag, it must mean that it has higher downforce. It's hard to predict how much, okay? But on average, you, you can rest assured that the car has higher downforce. And, and this is also confirmed by the by just the aerodynamic setup, okay? Like the Williams and the Ferrari, which are probably low drag cars by themselves, really run with the skinny rear wings. While for instance, the Aston run quite a, uh, let's say, a steep rear wing. It was not small at all. So when it get, the more evidence you get, the more you can be around sure about your uh, conclusion. So we said the Ferrari is quick and it has high top speed so it must have high efficiency okay because efficiency i mean aerodynamic efficiency is defined as downforce divided by drag it has a very low drag okay because it has a great top speed but it will also have very good downforce after all otherwise it will be a williams which has the same top speed more or less but it's much slower 
So what differentiates the car from the Williams is not the top speed and so the drag. It will be the downforce, okay, mostly. So it will be a highly efficient car, as more or less also the Red Bull is. While, for instance, the Aston Martin and the Mercedes are quite quick, okay, but they don't have a good top speed. This means that they must have quite good downforce. Otherwise, if you don't, if they have high drag and not good downforce, how are they going fast? Okay, there, there is no way. Maybe in Monaco, where um, the mechanical traction really matters, but not in Bahrain, not in 90% of the tracks. Then it also gets interesting when you discuss the slower teams like Williams and Alpha Tauri. Alpha Tauri. Can we stop a- you before you go to the slower teams? Let's have a conversation about Mercedes and Aston Martin because on your graph, they are on top of each other. But what we saw in Bahrain was Aston Martin very much on top of Mercedes and obviously in the end Ferrari, but I think that's more Carlos Sainz than anything else. Um, To me, that shows it purely comes down to maybe tyre wear. Yes, Uh, let's say this plot is a snapshot of qualifying. Okay, so for each team, I consider the best uh, lap of that team done in qualifying. I, I always use qualifying because uh, the fuel is the same for all, the tires are the same. That's uh, no toes, because with the toe you lose time. So if you good, if you do the best time, you are doing that without the toe, unless you are in Mons and maybe and maybe uh, Spa, okay? Uh, the DRS is open for everyone. The engine mode is maximum. I am also referring to the ERS, for everyone, so it's yeah. the most representative session. Okay, it gets rid so of all the variables, right? Yes, you you have very very few variables. Okay, in the race, why is one car slower? Well, maybe it was a fuel saving. Maybe uh, it was preserving the tires. Maybe it was having some problems. You don't know. In qualifying, if you are slower, uh, unless you make a mistake, uh, the car is simply slower. Okay. Or, so this or, is showing us the outright pace when the cars run at their very fastest. This is your graph is showing us a, a snapshot of that. So the fact that Aston Martin outperformed Mercedes and Ferrari a little bit in the race, that doesn't show on this graph because you weren't measuring that. But if you yeah, were to yes. do a similar thing with the race, it would be just much more complicated because there's just way way more factors to take into account that you'd have to try and work through. Yes, ex- exactly. Also, um a couple of things on this. You can see that uh, Mercedes and Aston are really uh, one on top of uh, each other. Okay, so they had this is uh, something that we can say with absolute certainty. They had the same lap time, or, and so mean speed and the same top speed. This does not mean that the cars also in qualifying performed exactly in the same way. If you compare the speed traces or the, yes, the speed traces, let's say, through the lap, you see that there are some differences, okay? But the differences are far smaller than if you compare the telemetry of the Mercedes to any other car. If you compare the Alfa Tauri with the Ferrari, which are on opposite side of the spectrum, or Williams with the Mercedes, you get huge difference. Anyone can see it just from the speed telemetry. So if two points are very far, it means that the car will be different in many aspects. If two points are very, very close, it does not mean, of course, that they are exactly the same, but it will probably be the closest teams also in telemetry. And I was uh, in part surprised that it was indeed true 
for Aston and Mercedes. Then, of course, through the race, um, you, you get the problem of tire wear. Okay, it, you also can have other things like if you start behind another driver, you you drive 20, 30 laps on dirty air. Okay, and that affects the, the wear and the temperatures as well. But of course, you can get uh, better tire wear by, for instance, if the car, if the other car is sliding a lot, you can just increase some um, a, a bit your downforce on the rear wing, and this most of the time reduces the wear for uh, reasons that they can expand on afterwards. As I also worked a lot of months on tires, um, but it, it's also about things which you don't see, like the suspension setup. Or the differential settings as well, which can make two cars which look about the same perform very differently in tire wear. And tire wear was the main differentiator between uh, Mercedes and Aston in the race. In qualifying, they, they were meshed, but Mercedes would have been quicker probably if they did the same number of Q3 laps as uh, Aston did. Yes, and Built to Jay-Z Lexus in the chat says tire wear has a lot of factors that this graph can't show. And what that means is Mirko had to make another graph to show the tire wear. And I haven't got that for this show because I, I wanted to try and avoid us um, making this too hard for the audio listeners to follow. But check out the at F1 Data Analysis Twitter account and you'll see the tire wear graphs that Mirko also produced for the race that we had last weekend and that also showed something quite stark and i'm going to attempt to describe this and i want you to correct me if i've misunderstood but what i think it showed was red bull not only were super fast but they had really low tire wear and depending on the compound and on on the hard compound i think the ferrari were actually worse than the other top teams the mercedes and the aston but really Ferrari, Aston Martin, Mercedes were kind of clumped together in terms of tyre wear and Red Bull was the outlier. Red Bull had significantly better tyre wear than everyone. Is that right? Did I read the graphs correctly? Yes. Yeah. So to answer the question, yes, this plot does not show anything about tyre wear, not because it's not done well, but because it was not the purpose at all. If it was the purpose, I would have produced it with the race data, the first thing, and not qualifying data. And maybe what I could have shown, this is something that I may, might do uh, in the future, to do one point for each team for each lap. So like, okay, across this thing, the top speed changes this way and the mean speed changes the other way. But it was not the, the scope of the plot. I have other plots which are dedicated to, 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 to watching that. So concerning instead uh, the, the, the most appropriate plot for that, uh, as I also posted on my page, yes, the Red Bull had a, a, a very impressive tire wear. It, it is, um, it's impressive because the Red Bull is one of the cars which, in my opinion, improved the most. Okay, but it was already not only very an extremely quick car last year, but it was a very complete car last year, and it improved in every aspect: in top speed, in downforce. I would say also in tire wear. Their tire wear was. Uh, absolutely impressive, especially on the soft tire. What I noticed by looking at the slope of the of the regression line, which mostly for the listeners, um, tells you how much pace you get after every lap you do on uh, the compound. The Red Bull lost after each lap on the soft tire 
only marginally more time that Ferrari lost with the hard tire. So there is a two compound difference. It's impressive. Also, if you consider that the Red Bull started the, the stint on the soft tire on yeah. a much, much better lap time than the Ferrari. Okay. So this means that the initial lap time was much better and the degradation was only marginally worse. This means that at the end of the stint, probably like I have to check the data for, for seeing that, but I'm, I'm quite sure about this. After 20 laps, the Red Bull on the soft was quicker than the Ferrari after 20 laps on the ass. No, not to speak about the, the beginning of the of the scene. So it's a Ferrari was the worst on, on where, but Red Bull was on a completely different level than also Mercedes and us. Yes, Alex? The interesting thing as well was obviously we've seen this from... Um... There, there was a whole rate there was a whole um video on max's radio commentary throughout the whole race where they had him managing his pace from lap one literally as soon as he was clear of of Charles Leclerc after the first couple of quarters they had him absolutely managing his pace and he was actually arguing with the team that he didn't want to slow down when they're telling him to slow down which obviously would have helped with their tire wear but i think if i looked at that graph is the interesting thing is is their performance on the soft was far more superior to other teams than their performance on the hard compared to the other team so their 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 wear is closer to the other teams on the hard than it was on the soft yes uh, on the hard the difference is not as big so the red bull is absolutely mind-blowing on the s okay you can if you look at my plot you will see that they look two different uh, sessions, two different tracks on the soft. On the art, it was better in both the ultimate pace, so the pace you get with the new tire, and also in terms of wear, but the difference was not as striking. The fact, though, is that Red Bull knew that, okay? And so they did two stints on the soft. So, yes, they did not have that much advantage on the arts, but they only did one stint on the arts because it was mandated by the rules. Otherwise, they would have done three stints on the soft. So it's really, what they achieved, it's really impressive. Absolutely impressive, yes. It it, it was absolute domination from them. And it's funny, it's easy to look at the times and see its domination, but it's not even a case of you can look into the data and see, oh, well, because of this, this, and this, it gave them that advantage. It's a case of, it's a slam dunk of, no, they just annihilated everybody in every single facet of the sport we're still really well for next week this week even even with that uh managing that you were talking about alex they were still going quicker than everyone else so it still it doesn't it doesn't kind of make the graph void at all it just no it it just shows that they had more pace that they could have used if they needed it towards the end of the race they were telling max and checo to reduce their lap times by 0.7 of a second compared to their delta and at that point seven slower, they were still the fastest cars on track. You know, that's well, if you remember back to 2014 when we had that safety car and all of a sudden the two Mercs just went at it hammer and tongs and they dropped the whole field by like 30 seconds in 15 laps. I think we have that kind of pace advantage, maybe more. But the fact we won't, we won't be allowed to have Perez fight Max. Yes, if I can add one thing about this, one thing I always get surprised is something which uh, I do myself as well um, in a limited way, uh, is that 
fans really have a very short memory about how things can change. Okay. So, for example, last year after Australia, Ferrari was as dominant as Red Bull was this race. Maybe slightly less, but Red Bull had two DNFs already, Verstappen, three with the Perez. Okay. Leclerc won the race with a huge margin. Okay. And they had a very, very big lead in the championship. So Ferrari was better than Fer Red Bull is looking now. Okay. At the same time, Mercedes was nowhere. Like in Imola, they were, I don't know, the, the fifth, the sixth fastest car. Okay. They were incredibly slow. Then after 15 races, so let's say six months more or less, Mercedes almost reached the Ferrari in the Constructors' Championship, which is mind-blowing. Okay, of course, I don't expect Red Bull to um, do all the mistakes uh, that Ferrari did. Red Bull won Ferrari. Ferrari. No, as a Ferrari fan, I can tell you that only Ferrari is able So that to... answers one of our questions. We did have in the notes, are you a Ferrari fan? It was probably yes, obvious from your accent, but um, you know, we had to ask. Yes, I am, and uh, I had nightmares about the... To, to uh, 2017 Singapore Grand Prix, Grand Prix twice. <laughs> it's the only Grand Prix I dreamt of. I was completely shocked by that race. It really ruined my psychological side. <laughs> but yes, I am. It's uh, being a Ferrari fan is something which really, uh, I'm not joking, really, uh, I think, strengthen your. Uh, uh, character. Your character, yes. Uh, <laughs> even though, yeah, no, it's true because um, you follow the sport for many years and you are not following, I don't know, uh, McLaren, which is on a very low level for years. Okay. So there is not a year in which they compete for. Sorry, for, McLaren for, fans. Uh, yeah, I'm it's sorry, true. but I, I can really feel them after 2020. Uh, I, I really mean it. But um, with Ferrari, you have many bad years, and then you have years like 2017, 2018, the, the later part of 2019, uh, 22, in which you have cars which are at least on par, let's say on par with the best one. Gives and you then, hope. Uh, yes, you hope also because this always happens at the beginning of the season. Okay. And then after the summer break or um, six, eight races, everything goes downhill. I, just... I think it's. Um, it's mostly a, a problem of uh, organization. I, I I also spoke with two Ferrari engineers, okay, and they both uh, um, they, they both said that there was this problem before I even asked them about the, the thing. So it's something which it's hard to explain. It's a I guess an organizational problem which they carry on for years, and we also are seeing. It, this stuff in these days as well it's systemic in the ethos of the team i think um so this know, is a perfect segue before you talk about that because although we could sit here and listen to mirko all night it's probably <laughs> quite late in italy and um you know we've already run over an hour on the show so i'm going to move on to our next segment. times to tell him not to not to get yes. Mirko to stop talking the chat are really enjoying <laughs> it but we uh, fortunately because Mirko does speak very eloquently and at length about the topics that we've covered so far tonight, that means the fact that we don't know that much about the next topics won't matter because we can just keep them short. So let's move on to... And it also means Mirko's going to have to come back. Let's head on to our next segment. And this, thankfully, relatively brief segment 
is all about trouble behind the scenes of the top three teams. So I think the main one is that Ferrari, as we were just talking about, have lost one of their senior technical figures, uh, David Sanchez, who probably most of us haven't heard that much about, but I, I hear he's pretty influential behind the scenes. He's the head of vehicle concept responsible for the overall car design for the last few years. So someone effectively overseeing the shape of the car, I guess, in, in the most simple terms. And we understand that he hasn't been sacked. Someone hasn't said, oh, this Ferrari's rubbish. Last year, the car was you know, pretty fast. It wasn't really the shape of the car, the aerodynamics that were the problem. In general, it was engine issues. So we expect, and I say we because Alex and I spoke about this before the show, we expect him to have a period of gardening leave and then pop up somewhere else. But it's not a great thing for Ferrari when they've started a season a bit behind you know, the leading team, Red Bull, when you probably want some consistency and to push on with your concept, that the main guy in charge of it has now left. Yeah, it, it definitely doesn't seem like a a move where the guy's been forced out um, because you wouldn't, at the, at the beginning of the season, you wouldn't boot out what is considered the main person behind your concept. Um, that very much screams of, oh, damn, we've got to let this guy go because he's found another role somewhere else. But we do see people moving from Ferrari on regular basis throughout the years because it seems like a bit of a pressure cooker environment in there and you stay in there as long as you can handle the heat. Um, and if you aren't performing and you aren't winning championships, which the Italian fans, I mean, which are probably the most passionate fans of any F1 fan, um, they don't accept it and they just expect to be winning because Ferrari is a is an international is a national team of Italy rather than just a pokey Formula One team. I also think it's a little bit difficult being and I don't know where David Sanchez is is from. I don't know where his his home country is, but although Ferrari are super prestigious and you know they're a, they're an aspirational team that people would want to go and be an engineer for or any staff member for, they are quite far away from the the motorsport hub which is the uk if you are working for alpine or mercedes or mclaren or williams or haas to a certain extent then you've effectively you've got your choice of any of those teams as long as you live somewhere in the middle of the uk somewhere in england centrally you could probably commute to most of them to go and move to Italy for a non-Italian is quite a big upheaval. And we saw it with uh, James Allison, who went over there for a few years and then eventually came back to the UK. Um, so I don't know how much that plays into Sanchez's move. I believe he's been there for quite some time. I'd be interested. The question for Mirko is, when it comes to Ferrari, uh, we hear about, obviously, how aggressive the Italian media can be with Ferrari. Do you see that? As somebody who, you know, in the, in the local presses that, that come out, do you see aggression from the Italian media towards Ferrari when they don't have a good weekend? Yes, uh, it's um, it's something which I don't... Okay, I, I understand from a media point of view, for sure it's not good for the team, but it's also uh, to such a degree that you really cannot imagine if you don't live in Italy. So it's like, uh, uh, it's like, yes, the national team, okay, but not, yes, like the national team, it has to perform. Otherwise, it's, uh, let's say, uh, something which is not worth of uh, the people of Italy, which does not make sense because it's a private, uh, uh, let's say, enterprise, okay? It's a, it's a racing team. Why should Italians, 
sorry, Italians, it's correct for Italians like me to follow, to support the team, but it's not correct to expect that a, a private enterprise, a, a team of any kind must, I don't know, um, give its credits to the fans, to, 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 to all the Italians, I mean. So it must perform to the expectations of the fans, of the sponsors and so on, but it doesn't make sense for it to become something uh, countrywide. But it, it, it's what it is. And uh, the, um, the newspapers really, uh, after every unsuccess, start uh, like uh, guessing who will leave uh, the soonest, who will be sucked, and so on. And you can really see that uh, when the team, okay, when uh, the team is doing so-and-so, you don't see many people uh, talking about Formula One, okay? Even for myself, which I'm in the uh, vehicle dynamics field, okay? But as soon as Ferrari does very good or very well, everyone, your father, your <laughs> neighbor, everyone starts talking about what Ferrari is doing, which is something uncommon. It's something which it's also enjoyable because it makes you uh, belong to something, but it's not good for the team because the negative news is always more clicky than the good news and also in case of Ferrari is more frequent. Uh, and one problem in Ferrari is that, in fact, it has a very, um, let's say, a changeable uh, people, okay? So you have many people in at many levels, okay, which change uh, through time. They, they, they also stay for one, two, or three years. Uh, the reason why I have this... Uh, this weather is not casual, but if you can see it, okay, this is about, this is the shirt of my very own racing team, okay, the, the racing team of my university. And I, I did not wear this to, to give this answer, but I will use that as an example, <laughs> because one big problem that Formula Sci or Formula Students team do, like mine, is that there is no generational transfer of information. This is absolutely terrible, okay? The top team must have the same people in high positions for at least three years, which is nothing for, in terms of a, a team guided by students because in three years, people start from, okay, I have enough expertise to join the team to I'm already graduated, okay? And at the same time, you must have people who are lower uh, down the chain that have then learned and, and are able to become the chief of some uh, assembly, let's say. Uh, and we we had many problems uh, ourselves with transferring the knowledge. Like why do, do like I was the chief of uh, vehicle dynamics, as, uh, as, you, as you can imagine. Why did I choose that wheelbase value for the car? Why that track? Why did we decide for that, I, I don't know, um, brake balance or camber value, okay? If I'm not able to transmit the reason why I made these choices, but I only transmit the choices, the people will only be able to run that specific setup. And as soon as there is a problem, they will not know where to touch things or how to solve the problems. This is a massive problem. And I think it's uh, one of the problems that Ferrari is having because it's it's intuitive. It's just normal to have these problems when you have many people who are changing. You, you don't even have the time to build a structure to, uh, to to realize your vision 
that you are already sucked and uh, changed with someone else. So it's a it's a real mess from that point of view. I think you've got many people changing positions all the time, and then when you're in the position, you're worried about your performance because Looking over if your, your performance isn't good, you're you're on the chopping block. So it it it, it seems like a place that. You've got to get earn a lot of money if you want to work there to take the stress to actually go there, which I assume they earn very well. <laughs> so a team that apparently, I'm just going to use this as a, a moment of segue, a team that apparently is sticking together and isn't looking to um, chop any heads off at the top of the company is Mercedes because Toto Wolf says that the team are sticking together despite Lewis Hamilton's they didn't listen to me remarks. So Alex, you've, you listened to this live. I actually missed this when it was broadcast, uh, but Lewis Hamilton effectively, uh, is, I think this is a bit strong saying he accused the team of saying this. Hamilton in a post-race interview said that he wished that Mercedes had listened to him when he told them what the car needed last year. And it seems that the car has, has inherited some of the problems of last year. I, I find this a little bit of a stretch because and I'm not Lewis Hamilton, I'm not a Formula One driver, so obviously we're putting this out there, but a driver just wants the car to be faster, and although you could you know, ask for some slight balance changes, I'm not sure what he means by things that he that he, they didn't listen to him about. Aside from saying, please make this next one not bounce like crazy, <laughs> and please make it as fast as possible through a, a combination of being as low drag and as high downforce as possible and also get the engine department on board... What else could he have said? So what he said was, he said he has driven a lot of different types of cars over his course, over his years in the sport. And from the characteristics of cars that he has driven over the times, he knows what makes a car fast and what makes a car slow um, and suggested and put in various suggestions. Now, he didn't obviously elaborate what these suggestions were. So we don't know if it was error related or if it was suspension related. Or He's not where... in there saying, please add three degrees to the left rear winglet. No, or, or we need to improve the airflow over the tyres to reduce downforce, to, to reduce drag and things like that. Um, but it seems like he had put a lot of things in, had, had questioned a lot of things, had asked a lot of questions, and... What he made it sound like, bearing in mind, adrenaline's still pumping, it's post-race interview stuff. And he said it um, in a friendly way. He, he, he wasn't, he wasn't angry way. or no. accusatory. Was he just he just wished they had they had done the things that he had asked to, and it doesn't seem like they've done any of those. Which, listen, from an engineering team of a cup of, of several hundred people that are in that team, um, for they probably heard things from a racing driver and went, okay, Lewis. Um, and and, moved and on. New, Maid, New Maid in the chat says he could have said, please spend more than the budget cap, which, um, <laughs> which you know, that would have had a positive influence on, on See, the car. And we should probably point out New Maid, uh, I believe, sent a super chat earlier. Did. Didn't ask a question, um, but just said we had a great guest on and we appreciate that. So we, thanks, New Maid. We also did have a super chat much, much earlier on in the show uh, from Insured Frames talking about our um, our Twitter chat, which unfortunately we had to close because there was a horrible echo on the Twitter chat, so we had to close the Twitter well, chat. Luckily, that'll... it doesn't seem like that has gone on to the main um the main audio so hopefully we'll be all right that'll later. teach people to listen on the worst possible way to hear full <laughs> chat which is the twitter space so hopefully a few people have migrated across to the podcast 
or video. Um, another team in crisis this week, which is very much overstating the reality, is Helmut Marco at Red Bull issuing a quit warning, saying that oh, the relationship, who. the relationship with Red Bull is no longer friendly, or I should quote correctly, the friendly relationship is no longer there. Um, Marco has declared, "I can stop at any time," uh, appearing Hi. to voice appearing to voice his discontent at the new Red Bull structure formed after the death of Dietrich Mateschitz. So this is a helmet Marco of um, let's deliberately give the Red Bull drivers COVID fame um, and many other inappropriate comments that he has made. Not He's probably not a friend of the show, Helmet, but yeah, that's it's interesting that in the week after the Bahrain Grand Prix, several of the top teams have had kind of behind the scenes um what's the right phrase it's because it's too much to state that yeah needle there's just they haven't had an entirely smooth week since the since the i kind of i don't understand why anyone would be nice to marco he doesn't seem like um helmet doesn't seem like the nicest person on the grid i can imagine there's a lot of young drivers that don't like helmet marco too much because of his um his uh penchants for for dropping them for dropping them but some drivers unceremoniously some drivers who like him a lot, who because he's got them into Formula One when they wouldn't have Max Verstappen, Sebastian Vettel, exactly, probably about it. So luckily, <laughs> I don't think Mark Webber likes him too much. Luckily, that's all we uh, need to go into on that topic because we've already run well over an hour, but we still need to squeeze in history with Alex and Brad. So let's do that. Okay, so fittingly, this week. History with Alex and Brad and Mirko is the birth of telemetry in Formula One. Now, Alex, I don't know whether you did similar research to me today, where you tried to find out. I think out... we both read the same article because when we it... started doing research, we actually discovered that actually research into the, the um, information into this topic is actually quite thin on the ground. It um, really is. I was I was hoping for a whole bunch of different YouTube videos, but all the YouTube videos are just basically on how to use telemetry, which is an entire topic all on its own because sometimes a whole bunch of squiggly lines on a page make no sense at all. So from what I found out, and I don't know if this is the very first team to have used it, but I found out that McLaren at least, who were quite advanced at the time, you know, one of the one of the teams at the front, um, first deployed telemetry in their cars in 1975. Um, and it was really just collecting information about the car. It's not really anything remotely to the level that we think of data nowadays but it wasn't even on a formula one car it was actually on their indy car um, and it was capturing 14 channels of data and it could only be downloaded back at the garage so in the 70s there was some kind of electronic information that could be gathered about the car but they're still largely relying on driver feedback at that time and that data those 14 lines of data was actually more about monitoring systems for the engines and temperatures and things like that more about keeping the car running than actually making the car go faster as you said they still very much relied on the drivers and, that. <clears throat> and really by the second half of the 80s that's when the first real data streams were becoming available and they were actually available in the garage before the car had made it back to the pits and this was using something called burst telemetry is that Actually, something before Sorry, that before that brad oh that... you found some different research to yeah, me no, this so, is good so, Fill be in the gaps. so before that they actually had um they had it on board on the car but it only could store enough data for one lap 
So they'd go out and have to do a run, have to go back to the pit, and then spend time downloading it from the car, getting it onto the computer system so they can look at it later that evening for look at, to look at one lap. And then they moved on to the burst, which you talked about. So this burst telemetry, have you heard of that, Mirko? Is that a, is that a term that's um, in, involved in modern data whatsoever? <laughs> you... I don't know about the, the term. I, I know, of course, that it's a thing. And I also know that at a certain point, telemetry or signals, let's say, became, uh, let's say, in two directions, meaning that the team could also influence the car. So that is something different. We... So me, myself, I don't use uh, bars telemetry, okay? I do research on uh, uh, prototypal motorcycles, so I'm, I work on two-wheelers and not four wheels. But in, in our case, we uh, do the run, okay? Save all the, the data, all the signals on a local data logger or more than one, which is on the motorcycle. And then we download the data once the test is stopped. So it's not something that we use, uh, that I use in the first place. But I know, of course, it exists as also lifetiming uh, for Formula One. And so this 1985-ish data, this burst style that we were talking about, essentially, we didn't have a, a method of getting that data back to the pit whilst the car was far away. But when it drove directly past the pit lane, um, there would be a burst of data which was sent to the team in the pits. And it would be a small sample available to the engineers a few minutes before the car came back into the pits. Um, they could obviously then download more later. But computers and data transfer, obviously, were not remotely on the kind of scale we have now. The other thing they had there was um, obviously, again, a McLaren thing, was McLaren were the first to have a, a basically a, an electronic fuel gauge in their car. So they had this on the 1985 McLaren, which uh, Prost was was driving with, and they had a fuel remaining readout system, which was the first of its kind. Um, and but the system was unreliable. Uh, Prost famously threw threw caution to the wind in his second world title in Adelaide in 1986, despite his fuel, fuel readout. Despite his fuel readout warning, um, despite his fuel readout warning him that he was severely in the red. Luckily for the Frenchman, it was wrong. And you, you didn't just read that from an article. That was No, it, I, I just knew that. It was from, entirely from, from, just from, your, from my head. your own knowledge. So I do remember, and I believe this was sometime in the 90s, and Mirko can correct me if he knows that I'm wrong here. There was a point at which it became banned to alter the car from the pit. So we still have now where teams can talk to the drivers and tell them what the you know, the information that the car is sending back to the pits. They can analyze it back at base or in the pits. They can then give the driver some information and maybe ask them to change a setting on the steering wheel. But what they can't do, unless I'm massively mistaken, is do anything for the driver. They can't send data back to the car to alter a setting from the pits. They physically can. It's possible, but they're not allowed to do that anymore. It was 2003, the year. Okay, I was slightly out. But the 90s and the early 2000s all merge into one for me now. Now I'm approaching, rapidly approaching 40. Um, okay, so that's now banned. And, and I don't, don't remember what the reason was for that. I guess just putting more of the, assist, the driving. It? Yeah, it's just making sure the driver is doing all of the driving, I guess, unaided. Um, so that is really... Two-way telemetry, sorry, Red, Red Sox boy in the chat says, two-way telemetry was banned after David Coulthard's Monaco win in 2002, I think. Well, um, but that. My, what, what, what I read was um, the real-time data transfer, so real-time data transfer, 
came again to McLaren um, in 1993. And that's when everything started to revolutionize and, and move forward and get the stuff that we have today, which is where you have thousands and thousands of lines of data instantly going from the car to the pit wall to and Mirko, and Mirko who's hacked the teams and <laughs> is getting all this he's got their wi-fi he's Mirko sat nearby and he's seen Ferrari's secret wi-fi yes, yes. and he the just knows the, on my desk. the password is just one two three four pizza that's it and he gets in that's it um <laughs> Anyway, that's pretty much all we found out about the birth of data in Formula One. But as we know, there is now um, a heck of a lot of it. And we're grateful for it because it gives us content to talk about between the races. So before we wrap up the show, and we've run a little bit long tonight, but before we wrap up, I just want to send some massive thanks to our special guest. So Mirko, thank you for coming. We feel very, very privileged to have someone of your knowledge um, and uh, the, your ability to explain things you, in terms of graphical format on Twitter, but also verbally on a podcast like this, um, you explained everything spectacularly well. So thank you very much. And we've had another super chat from New Maid, who is an absolute legend, who says, this is shaping up to be one of the best podcasts on YouTube. Shout thank it from the roof, rooftops. Keep it up, lads. So thank you very much, New Maid. And that is in a large part to such brilliant guests like Mirko. So thank you. We hope to have you back on at some point if you agree to that. And um, we'll... We'll find a date during the season and we'll we'll try and get you back. I'm sure we'll have a lot of demand from our listeners for that. Um, and before we go, a few final things. I should probably um, get rid of the little picture of the terrible computer that I put. If you Guys, if you are listening on the podcast only, go and check out the YouTube stream just to see some of the graphics that I put half an hour effort into before the show today because they're like moderately funny if you've got a rubbish sense of humour. Um, but that is about it for tonight's show. Before we go, if you've enjoyed the podcast and you want to give us a helping hand on our way to F1 media stardom, there are a couple of things you can do to help us. Um, consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can like the YouTube stream if that's where you're watching. You can subscribe to this channel. We do also have a full chat, dedicated YouTube channel where we upload the videos afterwards, but there's not really that many subscribers just yet. So we'll keep broadcasting on this channel for the moment. Um, but it is only a couple of clicks. Really helps to boost us in the rankings and then YouTube will recommend the show to more people and um, we've also got a full chat f1 tiktok account uh, that alex runs so go check that out if you're young and you've got tiktok uh, i was alex i was especially proud of the video i made last week um where i put everybody into a video from the movie armageddon i enjoyed making that one and i, and I was that. i appreciated you making that tiktok because i totally didn't understand the reference when you said it during <laughs> the show so i now know what that it's means. a movie reference you're never going to understand it yep I don't watch many movies, uh, so you don't remember them. Um, you can also, listeners, tell your friends because word of mouth is the best marketing tool for a podcast like this. Um, so tell your friends that we're brilliant. Follow Alex on Twitter at Alex Van Jean, also on TikTok, always Alex Van Jean on all the different platforms. You can follow me at Bradley Philpot on Twitter. You can follow the show at Full Chat F1 and definitely follow our guest at F1 Data Analysis because... That is a channel and a uh, an account which will pump out a hell of a lot more good content than we will over the Formula One season. So um, take a look there. And next week, we'll be looking back at what promises to be a very interesting Saudi Arabia Grand Prix. So until then, keep it full chat.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.